we already had a good idea about how to do it and now I've somehow transformed it into a really great business model which which grows it seems every week every month um, it gets bigger and bigger and there's more opportunity and it's all because we sort of learnt from the bushfire stuff so it's just been weird how it's all worked out it's, it's pretty amazing actually Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading to beautiful Bermagui to chat to Kelly Eastwood. Kelly runs Eastwood's Bermagui, but before she settled down there on the coast, she's worked as a private chef to royalty, to Russian oligarchs. She's been a home economist and TV food producer on shows such as MasterChef, Great Australian Bake Off and River Cottage Australia. Uh, Eastwood's Deli and Cooking School has many strings to its bow, cooking cooking lessons, pop-up dinners, private catering and meals for people to eat at home. Kelly, it's so great to have you on Dirty Linen. Welcome. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about Bermagui, first of all, put, put us in the picture and then tell us about Eastwood's. Well, Bermagui is a little slice of paradise, I have to say, um, and that's coming from someone that's travelled the world for 14 years. Um, I didn't ever think I'd find somewhere as perfect as this place, um, and in order to live here and stay here, I had to create a business, really, that um, that would keep me here. So it's it's evolved, certainly evolved over the years, but I began as a cooking school and a cafe um, initially which was a bit of a backflip from my time at River Cottage Australia in Tilba, which is just down the road from Bermagui. And, um, yeah, I was running the cooking school over there and then when River Cottage finished up, um, my boss said to me, I think, you should, I think you should set your own cooking school and business up. You're ready to do it. Have a shot. So I did and here I am four years later. Wow. I mean, it's been a pretty crazy four years um, on the New South Wales coast. You know, we've had the bushfires, obviously, um, COVID's put spanners in many works. But tell us about, you know, the business and, what, you know, what it's what it's been like and what it's how it's changed over the years. Well, uh, I guess the, looking back, the first year of the business was complete honeymoon period um, and, it, you know, I didn't understand the seasonality of the town, I guess, as well. So second year came with challenges of trying to wrap my head around that. We had tons of tourists over summer and, you know, everybody would work really hard and then it's it was challenging trying to keep my team all the year through because it drops off so much in winter and I always thought to myself, I've got to figure out a way of keeping this business sustainable all year round. Um so through that, I tried so many different things, Danny. We did the classes, we did the catering, we've done, we sold our take-home meals to local supermarkets and Lake Crackenback Resort. Um, I did all sorts of different things, pop-up dinners. Everything worked really, really well. But um, And I'm glad I did have different uh, avenues of income. But, um, yeah, it was certainly challenging. But then, of course, the fires hit, so that was the end of year two and that's when we, when we were really gearing up for a good summer to catch up on bills and all the rest of it um and then we had we had our biggest night on new year's eve our biggest day actually in the cafe and the biggest night we've ever had in our takings and that was new year's eve and then that was the night that the fires hit so um yeah from from then onwards life just hasn't been the same since really it's been yeah cartwheels and handstands and whatever else but here we are and i'm pleased to say the business is stronger than ever now so it's been it's been a, a definitely a roller coaster but 
we're all in a really good place now at Eastwoods and I've got a wonderful team and they all believe in, in the in the goal that I have now and that's to build the business, which is ready meal deliveries and, and that was also that stemmed from the bushfire disaster relief really that we did. Um at the, yeah, for seven weeks, which yeah, I'm sure you want to talk about a little bit too. But um yeah. So that's where we are now. And then of course COVID happened. So we had the bushfires. The fires came right up to Bermagui, didn't they? I mean, I think the town lost power. It was all, you know, was it one of those, you know, the sky went dark kind of experiences? 100%, yep. Um, we basically did the pop-up dinner and then I went to bed that night and everybody was watching their RFS app to see how close it was getting. And I guess, I don't know, we I felt like it was a bit of denial and I remember some some ash falling in the car park and the girls and I sitting outside after a cranking pop-up dinner were pretty exhausted and we noticed ash all over the car park and we were thinking, what the hell, it must be getting close. We went to bed and I woke up at, I guess, 4.30 in the morning that morning and looked out and I live at the entrance of Bermagui and I just saw what was 4,000 cars driving into Bermagui and they had been all night from all over on the coast. Um, and it was, yeah, I, I think it was, it was very close to Cabago. Then of course, Cabago went down um, through all of that. We had no internet, no water, no power, no communication, no, no um, phone signals, nothing. So, you know, friends all over the world and my family in Melbourne, everybody was wanting to know if we were okay. And there was only one spot in town really that had one bar. So you, you often saw people at the end of the pier in the wharf just waving their phones around, just trying to let their families know that they were okay. But, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was I don't know, 10 days of not knowing what was going to happen the next day. We basically came into the cafe the next morning when all, the, all of the um, evacuees came into town. And before we did the disaster relief, we didn't really know what to do. So 5.30 in the morning we went to the local bakery. We just bought heaps of loaves of bread. And um, the team and I just all decided to open up the doors and offer free coffees and we just grabbed everything out of the fridges, covered the whole bench, a cooking school bench in like loaves of bread, made heaps of sandwiches. I was on the coffee machine and it's not my strength, I have to say. I'm a chef, not a barista. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we just opened up the doors and everyone was obviously in shock. I had customers coming up to me in tears, not knowing if they'd lost their homes. Two of my staff, one of them was out um, fighting her home. The other one was also out fighting her home. And one of them actually texted me and said uh, she couldn't get out. She was just surrounded by fires and she couldn't get out. So at that point I thought I, I might've lost her, which was, she's one of my best mates. It was just a horrible moment. And then I remember getting another text from another staff member saying that her house had gone. And then I had another phone call from another friend in Tilba. This is all, you know, between 5.30 and 6.30 in the morning when we've got thousands of people turning up in shop themselves. And I had another phone call from someone saying the RFS has just said to get out, just get out of Bermagui, Bermagui is going down. You can't, you've got to get out now. It was all really hectic and emotional. And then we all had to leave the shop. Someone started screaming, get out, get out, get out. And then we all had to evacuate to the Oval. And it was like that, Danny, for days. It was like that for days. It just went on and on. And it, nobody knew what was happening because we had no communication. And it was just pitch black, pitch black. It was like Armageddon. That's the only way I can describe it, really. So, yeah, it was it was, it was full on. It was full on. Yeah, I feel a bit emotional talking about it, actually. Yeah. 
So do I. I I honestly feel like we, I mean, you were in the thick of it. You know, I was in Melbourne and down the coast. It was, you know, it was intense enough here, but I just really feel like we have not dealt with the fires. You know, we just rolled into COVID. There's so much unresolved, it's like trauma, as well as all the practical stuff, all that rebuilding that's still going on, don't you reckon? Absolutely. One of my team, a lady that's just started with us last week, she was only recounting her experience last week and she lived in Cabago. She still lives in Cabago and she was telling us how she was driving through flames. But we don't talk about the fires all the time, but when it does come up, we all do get very emotional about it. And I do feel like a lot of us probably haven't dealt with it because we did have to go straight into the COVID stuff and still try and deal with this trauma in our heads that, yeah, I don't know, like what do you do? Do you, I guess our counselling, well, for me, the counselling, a lot of the counselling was doing the disaster relief not long after that um, because it became, my kitchen became a place where, not, yes, we were doing, we were cooking for people in need, but we, it also became a place where, it was like a counselling session, really. We had 270 volunteers helping us out and it was a place where people would share their stories about what they, they'd lost. Their, we had people that lost everything, their business and their homes, and there they were chopping vegetables to help other people. So in a way it was therapy as well, talking about what they'd been through. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um Tell me about what you did. Like, what was what did you do with all these meals? So, um, I got a call. It all started right in the thick of it. I got a call from a friend that I used to work with on MasterChef, Dora. She was a producer, and I was in the food team. And she had done some work for World Central Kitchen when um, I think it was it was a hurricane in the Bahamas years ago. Um, so, World Central Kitchen is set up by Jose Andres in America, and he's an incredible man. He's a well-known chef, and um, it was Hurricane Katrina, actually. He started off doing his um, disaster relief. His belief is that when there's when something like that happens, the one thing that keeps people strong and their headspace strong is to be provided with food. And it's not just food. It's food with integrity, and it's reminding them that they're not forgotten, that they're not alone and they're not forgotten. And that's how powerful a package of meal can be. Um so Dora had done some work with them and called me and asked if I would be prepared to give my kitchen over and do that with them. So they flew over from America. Of course I said yes. They flew over from America. In the meanwhile, after 10 days, I'd driven to Canberra um, with a friend, couple of friends to get out of the fires. That was a nine-hour trip. It should have been three hours and we were driving through flames and all the rest of it as well. Finally got to Canberra and um, and then the phone calls began. So I was mentored. It was also surreal. I was mentored by a chef, the head chef for World Central Kitchen. Um, he was, at the time, he was working in Tijuana. Oh, no, he was working in America for refugees from Tijuana and he was feeding 2,000 people a day, 2,000 refugees a, t- a day, um, because they had nowhere to go and obviously they, you know, they'd cross the border and they they were homeless. So World Central Kitchen set up a station there to look after them. And while he was doing that, he was mentoring me on um, how many kilos and how many tonnes of rice to order, how many tonnes of pasta to order, how many, you know, you'll need 100 kilos of onions each day, you'll need 100 kilos of potatoes each day, you'll need this, you'll need that, you'll need this many kilos of beef, this many kilos of chicken. And I, 
it felt so surreal because not only the amounts, but how was I going to execute that and would my suppliers believe me? <laughs> because there were no businesses running, you know, there was nothing going. And they had also lost a lot of business too. So, and nobody had heard of World Central Kitchen really over here. So um, convincing them was part of the challenge as well. But once they realised it was all, you know, all above board and realised what a powerful organisation they are, um, they got on board and helped. And, yeah, we just sort of went from that. We set the kitchen up to do the meals and the basketball stadium next door. One of my most beautiful team members, Anne, set up the basketball stadium next door and she was in charge of doing all the salads and sandwiches that went out. Um, and between us, we executed over 46,000 meals in seven weeks with the 270 volunteers. Um, so, and it was like, I can't, I mean, I can't tell you how stressful it was at times. Just, it was like opening up a new restaurant every day with a kitchen full of people that had no kitchen experience. <laughs> and you can't lose your cool because they're volunteering and you've just got to, but you have to, the thing was as well, we had time deadlines. We had to get the meals out on time. Jose Andreas's thing is you have to get your meals out on time. Otherwise you're potentially making these people feel like they've been forgotten. And the whole point is that they're not forgotten. So there was a lot of pressure to get it out on time. We had drivers. My kitchen became like a drive-through. So we had this big dispatch system set up. People would bring their cars to the front door, off the hot boxes would go, and then the next one would come again. And it just went on and on and on and on. And there were long days. But you know what? Since then I've heard that many stories from people that were on the other side and receiving the meals. And it actually it did do exactly what we were hoping to do and it made them feel like all was not lost and there was a bit of hope somewhere. Um, and, yeah, for me that just showed me the power of what the power of a, a meal, a shared meal can do. It's Yeah, it's nurturing and it was just, yeah, very powerful in that way. So, yeah, it was a pretty full-on that's so – it just makes me think, like, people are actually amazing, you know, that that you could find it within you to lead that team and to make that happen and, you know, all the people that are helping and it's – I mean, I guess mo- most people most of the time, like, you just you just want everyone else to be okay, don't you, and you'll do whatever it takes to, um, to move towards that. But it's just – like, it's just – yeah, in you've spoken about, you know, what you've just gone through or what you're still going through. It just must have been so surreal. Like when you talk about it, is it sort of like a strange, yeah, just a strange, surreal dream? It is. It is actually. It is. But I have to say from that, we have got the best connection with our community now. Like our, our community is so strong down here in Bermagui and um, it showed me a lot about humanity. I mean, like I said before, there were people that had lost absolutely everything that turned up every single day to help other people. They didn't even know the, how they were going to start again, but they were here chopping vegetables, chopping 90 kilos of onions every day. You know, it, it really was uh, it really was an incredible experience. Um, and what they do, World Central Kitchen, they do it all over the world. I mean, towards the end of the fires, they were off over in Japan when the first COVID outbreak happened. They were feeding all the people on the cruise ships and the crew on the cruise ships. So these people, they like, they really are an amazing organisation. Um, so I'm, I, I feel privileged that I've had that experience with them, um, yeah, to be able to help people in need with, with what I know. My, my skills are 
food. You know, I, I know how to execute food and I'm just, I'm grateful that I was given the opportunity to use my skills to help other people. I have to say, you know, I follow Jose Andres on Instagram and I've seen them do incredible work in the US and um, Central Central America. But I have to say I was not aware that um, they'd uh, had this foray into Australia in this period. Yeah. Well, they had nine different um, action stations at the time of the fires. We were just one. So that is amazing. I know. I did not know that. Yeah. Yep. And they literally in. And the thing I love too is they just they fly in, they find a place to set up, and I have to say, red tape got a, got in the way a little bit in the beginning here, but that's the one thing that they also pride themselves on. They'll do it no matter what. They'll help people no matter what. They might be told by the local council that it's not a it's not it's not a good idea for them to set up here or set up there, whatever. They make it happen somehow. Um, and at the end of the day. It's, it's it's caring for people in a really traumatic situation. So, I, honestly, I, I, they are an amazing bunch of people. Yeah, respect. Tell us, Kelly, how, you know, that it's rolled on through COVID and, and what you're up to now. Well, after the bushfires sort of settled down after the seven weeks, uh, I think we had, we had a couple of weeks where we reopened no, that's right. Sorry, I've just got to get this in my head right. But um, after the bushfire disaster relief stopped, we had a little break for about two weeks. And then while I was away on two, for my two weeks to try and get my head back into what I should do, uh, I was contacted by Matt Preston, Gary Megan and Manu Fidel, bless them. Um, they wanted to know if they could help me reopen my business and kick it all off again, you know, let's kick the year off again. So they came and uh, they said, well, we'll do whatever you want to do. So I said, let's do a pop-up dinner. That's what we're known for. And so we did and we sold out really like overnight 300 tickets and we just had everybody outside and the boys came and they took selfies with everyone and we did a big, you know, big dinner outside. It was so much fun. That was awesome and then we reopened after that yay we're going to start again and then boom COVID kicked in <laughs> lockdowns so it was yeah pretty crazy year Danny to be honest but anyway then lockdown started and of course one by one I ended up losing all of my team because I couldn't operate as a cafe as many people in hospitality would have gone through um, I pretty much lost everyone but Anne and uh, between the two of us we just sort of figured out well what are we missing? What 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 do people need at the moment? They can't leave their houses. Maybe we should try and deliver meals. So I sort of sat back and watched what everybody else was doing and everyone's trying to scramble and figure out what to do. And we just sort of went with our gut and said, let's just do that. I mean, we were feeding thousands of people beforehand. Why can't we do the same sort of thing now? And we'll just figure out a delivery system. And it was, it had lots of hiccups in the beginning. Um, and that was before Kookaburra came along. So Kookaburra is the software platform that I use now and it's just been an absolute game changer for me. It feels like it's just so meant to be because we were doing batch batch cooking, I guess, through the disaster relief and now that's pretty much what we're doing with Kookaburra. So we already had a good idea about how to do it and now I've somehow transformed it into a really a really great business model, which which grows, it seems, every week, every month. Um, it gets bigger and bigger and there's more opportunity. And it's all because we sort of learnt from the bushfire stuff. So it's just been 
weird how it's all worked out. It's it's pretty amazing actually. You never know where you're going to get your lessons and, you know, find your, find your next direction, do you? I know. No. It's just, it's all just happened so well and so, yeah, obviously with all the hiccups that goes with COVID and everything else. But, um, no, it's just been a really great way to transform the business. So we actually got rid of the coffee machine. Even this morning we still had people turning up asking if they could come in for a coffee, but we're not a cafe anymore. So we've got rid of all of that. We've got rid of the customer seating and we are a production kitchen now. So that's what we've turned into. We still do a bit of catering and we do our cooking lessons whenever we can, but our main focus now is our ready meal deliveries, which, um, yeah, I really enjoy too as a chef because – it's sort of going back to my days on super yachts and I can be a private chef again. Every menu is different each week, which I love. I love the creativity. I I was never very good in the cafe, to be honest, Danny. I'm not very good at, um, I don't know, sticking to the same menu every week. I get bored really quickly. I need a challenge. And this is, this just suits my personality really, really well. Love it. So what's, um, when you say batch cooking, can you just explain what that is? Yeah. So basically, you're cooking, for example, I'll, I'll cook um, a massive batch of like 40 kilos of meat, chicken tikka masala, for example, um, and then and then we portion it all up and you've got 40 meals ready to go. So it's cooking everything in one big pot or in the oven or whatever, but it's like you're cooking, you're cooking in volume, I guess, and then you're portioning it out. And that's what we did during the disaster relief. So you're doing one big pot of something or one big tray of something and then portioning it up instead of, I guess, a la carte where, you know, it's it's to order. Um, as I said, that doesn't suit my personality. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got that creativity but also is it like the rigour of that you, you're working towards a particular delivery day each week so it's kind of all streamlined? Exactly. And what I love about it as well now is that I can – I know exactly how much I've got to order. So our orders come off at 10 o'clock on a Monday night. I know exactly how much food we need in the kitchen. I know exactly how much my wages will be. Um, and it's also, it's reduced, reduced waste. There's no more waste because everything, if we cook a little bit more than we're supposed to, we freeze it down and then we sell it as a frozen meal next week and they still sell really well as well. Um, so it's, it just ticks so many boxes and I love, we still have a personal connection with our customers too, probably more so than when we were at cafe because now we're in a situation where the team and I say, oh, my it's, it's been really interesting, actually. I'm the only chef at the moment. Um, and out of the team, we've got Anne, who was a, a dairy farmer for years, and then there's Sally, and she worked at the Bigger Cheese Factory for years. Sam was a dancer in Moulin Rouge. Um, you know, all of the team have got such different backgrounds, but now they know we're all, they're all sort of trained up to weigh up the recipes, prep the food. Quite often they'll cook a lot of it as well, and it's just been a really good um, – process so they're all part of it from the start to the end and then they deliver it as well so there's this connection that they have with the food and then they're delivering it personally to the customers they do the same sort of route every week um, so they know their customers really well and we have stories every week of our customers waiting out on the driveway to give us chocolates or a bottle of wine or they just want to have a conversation and say hello it's it's a real it's it's such a personal connection I just I love that about it as well it's not just you know people coming in for a coffee anymore which as I said wasn't my strength so (laughs) um it's 
I just love it for so many reasons, and that that's a big one, actually. Yeah, that's a really big one. What do you think? You know, do you think that you know, it, post COVID, is this still going to be a thing that people are going to want to stand in their driveways and wait for their dinner to arrive? Um, do you feel like it's got this model's got longevity? I do because. I, it's funny that you say that because so many people have said to me recently, well, now that restrictions aren't on anymore, are you still going to do the meals? And I'm watching the numbers and they're not dying at all. People are getting used to this convenience now. So, and also another great thing about um, the platform is that we deal with a lot of NDIS participants and a lot of people um, on home care plans. So anyone that um, is eligible for Meals on Wheels, we give them but they're eligible to buy our meals as well and get up to, I think it's 70% off, um, and then the government reimburses us. So we're helping more and more people like that as well. But it's also been great for people that are doing renovations on their kitchen that don't have a kitchen at the moment or time-poor time poor people or um, parents that have a new baby in the family, um, elderly people that can't cook anymore, don't want to cook anymore. There's so many different demographics that this business model suits not to mention the tourists um we're looking at delivering to we've got 32 caravan parks on our on our path that we deliver every friday so that's my next step to try and grow it towards um because i don't know can you imagine going camping and then rocking up and you've pre-ordered a really nice meal for your family and there's something for the mum and there's something for the dad and then the kids can have pasta it's all there in your fridge ready to go um it's it's a convenience that people are getting used to that they haven't had before i guess Mm. Yeah, I definitely can imagine that camping scenario. That does sound <laughs> very. That does sound yeah, very relaxing. Well, there's only so many barbecues you can have. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Um, I love. I mean, I I always get fascinated hearing about private chefing. Um, you've obviously cooked for you know some VIPs and on the soup yachts and all that. Can you can you take us into that world a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so that's something that I did for 14 years uh, on and off. I started off as a stewardess for the first year or two and then I realised I was in the galley all the time wanting to know how they cooked, how the chefs cooked everything. Um, so I ended up doing my course at Ballymaloe Cookery School in Ireland and then I, um, yeah, it was fantastic. And then I worked for a little bit. I got a bit of experience at Rick Stein's restaurant in Cornwall. And then after that, I was straight back onto the, the yachts again. And my first boat was with the Getty family. So Getty Images, that was with them. They were wonderful to work for. Uh, and that was an old boat from the that was built in the 1930s, I believe. It was a hospital boat during the war. And they converted it into a super yacht. So it's, um, it's a bit of an old antique. It's a beautiful old boat. Um, and then from there on, I just went from boat to boat to boat, really, over the years. And, yeah, cooked for royalty, cooked for a Russian oligarch for four years. We had bomb checks under the boat every day. Um, we had, oh, you know, paparazzi chasing us in places. It, it, was a, it was a crazy, crazy, crazy life. But I'm glad I got to see the other side of it. One of the boats I worked on, we, Bill Gates used to charter it actually, and he would, there was a swimming pool on the platform and he would fly in on his helicopter and the swimming pool would, you know, they'd press a button and the swimming pool, swimming pool becomes a helipad and he would land and we'd be in the middle of nowhere in Croatia. It was all very James Bond. <laughs> what does Bill Gates like to eat? You know what? He's it's interesting. He reads two books at the same time, which is which is wild. 
Um, but he, he like, hang on, hang on. He's literally sitting there with two books yes. open. Yep, sits on the beach reading two books. <laughs> I don't know how. Uh, I think my brain just exploded. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he, um, he, he, we found so before he arrived, well, before these guests arrived, we always get given like a manifest of, of what they like and what they don't like. This was a book and um, the, one of the things he really likes is just good home-cooked food. Everywhere he goes, chefs are trying to impress him So, or, or you know, business partners or whoever are trying to impress him. So he's fine dining all the time. When he's on holidays, he just wanted relaxed Tex-Mex. He wanted really good burgers. He just wanted family food that was so... Um, what's the word? I guess just casual. He didn't want any any fanfare or anything like that. Every night they had a, a meeting with the family, so um, with his wife and the kids, they'd all have a meeting about what they were going to do the next day, were they going to go for a picnic, were they going to go kayaking, and, uh, and they had the best manners, the kids. They were such nice people. I've got nothing but lovely things to say about them. So, um, yeah, he was, he was pretty easy to look look after with food it was a lot easier than the russian owner that i worked for <laughs> um, well we don't want to have a have to bomb check this podcast so maybe you don't need to talk about the russian oligarch but have you got any celebrity goss that we can you, you can share um celebrity goss i cooked for spielberg that was that was a that was awesome i actually got filmed by spielberg he had a little hand hand camera and he always filmed everyone on the boat so i can officially say i've been filmed by spielberg in the valley. (laughs) (laughs) And do some of the rich people just want to eat? Is it all just like caviar and champagne? No, no, not really. Like the Gettys, they just, they, they, they had a place in Florence. So they love the Italian lifestyle. So their ultimate meal would be things like just go and find some really amazing tomatoes, some really amazing um, basil, some awesome burrata, local burrata, and then, you know, plonk that on the table for them and they are happy as. They're just, you know, very simple food. Um, whereas some of the other owners I worked for, they would, you know, I don't know, they would, I guess, order sushi and lamb and lobster and tiramisu, but they want it all at the same time. <laughs> you just don't know what you're going to get thrown. So you've got to sort of, I, I had every cut of meat and every fish you could think of on every trip because you just don't know what some of them are going to throw at you. But someone like the, the Getty family or the Gates family, they sort of they know what they like and they they just like good quality good quality food, which I you know I can relate to as well. Good produce, um, no you know good homemade food, pasta from scratch, all of that sort of stuff. That's the way I like to eat. That's the way I like to talk, um, teach. Sorry, that's the way I like to cook as well. So, um, yeah, a lot of them are like that. Some of them, obviously, it, it, there's a lot of excess, a lot of excess and a lot of showing off. But that just goes with the territory of being a billionaire, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I mean, uh, of course, I, I know very well what it's like to be a billionaire. Um, so, Kelly, I guess what, you know, drawing all these threads together from your very interesting and diverse career. I mean, what is it that you love about cooking for people? I, I guess I love, I'm, I love that it, I love to nurture. I love to nurture and I love, um, I love cooking people that I love 
their favorite foods, um, just to see their reaction, to see how much joy they get out of it. It's, it's a real, I love giving, I guess. And it's, yeah, nurturing is a big thing for me with food. And I mean, I guess that came through in the bushfire disaster relief and, um, it certainly came, comes through in our food that we do this, you know, every week as well. Everything about our food, uh, has integrity and it's, the garnishes have to be perfect. The portioning has to be perfect. The look of it has to be perfect. The taste, everything about it. We try so hard to make sure it's perfect because we want the person on the other side to feel like they've been given a gift, really. You know, that they're being looked after, that they've ordered something that lives up to what they were hoping for. And yeah, yeah, it's just, I guess it, it makes me feel good. And I hope that the people that I cook for, I hope it makes them feel good too. Yeah, I bet it does. What's something on this week's menu that you're really proud of? Oh, um, do you know what? Every week is so different. So we sort of um, we sort of go. It's it's interesting doing these menus because I'm trying to cover quite a few different demographics. But every week the lasagnas sell well. They always sell well. That's a given. Um, lately, we've been doing the last couple of weeks. We've been doing lunchbox treats um we're doing a little bit of a chinese new year celebration this week so we've got lots of chinese meals on there we do things like old school sweet and sour pork or um what else have we done oh we've got you know chow mein we've got sweet potato cottage pie um i'm doing an iranian lamb and split pea casserole which i can't wait to cook and then we've got a seasonal vegetarian lasagna danny this recipe was from my um, home ec class in primary school. So that's how different it can be. Stood the test of time. Yeah, it's a favourite of mine. So every week the recipes are drawn from somewhere, whether it's nostalgic or whether, you know, it might be Bastille Day this week, it might be Mother's or whatever it is, it might be. And I, the team and I have spoken about it. We're always going to try and reflect what's happening in the world that week or um, if someone sees a recipe the team are always texting in recipes if they've cooked something or if they've seen something cool. We all share ideas and um, if it's – I love nostalgic recipes for me. Um, you know, we did retro apricot chicken last week and we also did – you know, the, but we'll also do some recipes from, say, for example, Chin Chins or Arabesque or, you know, some of my favourite cookbooks. It changes every week and that's what I really, really love about it. So that's what we've got this week. That's just a snippet. We've also got Sicilian cheesecake. We've got a strawberry pie. We've got Sunday meatballs. So there's, as I was saying before, there's something for everyone on there, mum and dad, the kids, grandma. Yeah. Love it. I'm, the only the only bad thing is that I'm out of the delivery zone. But other <laughs> than that, <laughs> it all sounds good. I'm happy for your customers. We can join it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the magic of Bermagui could draw me in. I know. At least because of the sweet potato cottage pie <laughs> and the, yeah, sweet and sour pork all sounds so good. Um, Kelly, it's been absolutely amazing to have a chat to you today. I feel like you'd have, you've got a million stories, um, that it's great to dip into your life and your passion for food and for nurturing people. Thank you so much for sharing with us today on Dirty Linen. Oh, thank you for having me. I love your podcast, Danny. All the best. Thank you so much. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. 
We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is